I wanted to get into a little bit more uh, on kind of what's going on here in Canada and the global response as well. My next guest is the Assistant Professor of International Relations at the University of Victoria, Will Greaves. Will, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for the invitation, Jeff. Okay, so I want to just sort of start by getting into the, the institutional response that we saw. I mean, the WHO yesterday uh, finally called this a pandemic, you know, something they were trying to avoid for quite some time. Yesterday, it finally went about doing so, and there were a number of factors as to why. Um, you know, do you just, you know, from your point of view as, a, you know, with international relations, do you think that this can make a big difference now in how the world is responding to this crisis? Definitely, definitely. The WHO's decision to declare a pandemic is one of these factors that is leading to, just since yesterday, and will continue to lead to, I think, a more serious response on the part of a lot of different governments to this issue. Having not declared it a pandemic was something that a lot of uh, both individuals and institutions were using as a way of justifying business as usual or normal practices, and that's something that isn't really going to be tenable anymore. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, just there's a lot of countries, I guess, that ne weren't necessarily taking this seriously, and the hope, I guess, is that, you know, calling it a pandemic will, will trigger them to be a little more concerned and a little more cautious and take more protocols to make sure this thing is not spreading within their own borders. Um, you know, is it is it a matter of money, I guess, do you think? Why, like, why are some places so reluctant to, um, you know, I guess, o almost overreact in this kind of a situation? I think there's a couple of different reasons. Uh, they overlap in some ways. Uh, number one, is it is about money. I think it's about uh, real fears about what the economic consequences uh, are going to be. Already, of course, we have unavoidable costs and you know significant losses, of course, on the on the global stock markets. But if we see a significant uh, you know slowdown of everyday community-based economic activity as uh, major institutions, large employers, schools, and so forth shut down for a period of a number of weeks, uh, I think a lot of policy makers were just really reluctant to to enable that to happen, that they're really concerned about the way in which that's going to produce uh, economic harm in their communities. And maybe from kind of a state of denial, you know, they, they hoped against hope that if they just, uh, you know, kept their heads down, that this might pass them by and it wouldn't be necessary. I think that's now proving to be, you know, uh, unfounded or unrealistic. Um, I think there's other reasons as well, though, why some jurisdictions and some individual uh, political leaders have been reluctant to take stronger action on this. And that has to do with I think the broader implications of different kinds of partisan and ideological positions with respect to listening to scientists and listening to the experts on this subject, uh, it's kind of a crack in the door, right? If you concede the fact that you need to listen to the medical and public health experts in order to effectively deal with COVID-19, which of course is something I think we, we do need to do and responsible leaders need to accept, um, that really undermines your ability to ignore science and experts in other domains of public policy, which speaks directly to a lot of the contentious political issues that we're currently dealing with. Um, do you ever feel like when, when looking at some of the political responses around the world and how a lot of them seem to, uh, you know, defer basically any responsibility to uh, their, their health officials, places like the World Health Organization, which of course, you know, when it comes to the medical advice is obviously what we want to do and, uh, you know, listen to the people who know exactly what, uh, what they are talking about. But, um, you know, it just feels like sometimes uh, the po political scene uh, almost tries to brush things aside as like, hey, uh, we're, we're not going to deal with this because that's up to the health officials. We're just going to deal with what we can control. And, and, you know, you had mentioned here in your last response, like those two things really are connected. But for some, it just seems like there is almost a, a wall or a barrier that they try to put between those two things. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it comes down to priorities. It comes down to um, broader attitudes towards public policymaking. And we have a a real reluctance on the part of uh, many politicians to disrupt, as I said before, business as usual. You know, uh, we're living through an age where uh, the highest value that a lot of public policymakers place is on economic growth and economic productivity. And so anything that threatens to damage those economic numbers, anything which um, is viewed as being bad for the economy and therefore bad for individual politicians, electoral re, you know, re-election prospects uh, is something which somewhat irresponsibly some politicians you know, seek to, to downplay or seek to avoid engaging with uh, in the way that they need to. So when you have a major crisis like this, you know, by definition, it forces politicians under normal circumstances to do things that they wouldn't normally do, that they wouldn't otherwise do. Uh, but we're, you know, in a any period of kind of fragile economic circumstances and uh, very, very divided partisanship, we're seeing some politicians being reluctant to embrace those, you know, tougher, obviously less popular, more expensive types of policies in favor of a kind of head-in-the-sand approach to, to dealing with this crisis. Uh, you know, yesterday, like like I've mentioned numerous times, now the WHO, of course, calling it a pandemic, and then following not too long after that, we saw uh, the federal government here in Canada do their $1 billion fund and, and what was going to be happening with those dollars and how that would help the problem. And then last night, we saw President Donald Trump, of course, give his address, um, you know, talking about what the U.S. is going to be doing. Do you think it, I mean, it's it looks, the timing obviously doesn't look like it's a coincidence. I mean, a pandemic was called, and then all of a sudden, now these political leaders are, are coming and, and showing face and and making sure that they um, have a plan in place or at least have uh, put together some sort of plan that the people are aware that they are announcing. I mean, uh, I'm assuming that you would also take it the same way. There's no coincidence that those two things happen in, in such a short time. No, there's definitely no coincidence. You know, the declaration of a WHO pandemic is precisely why Donald Trump had to change his tune 180 degrees practically from just, you know, two days previously. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it really underscores exactly how untenable his position and his administration's position had become. But if I can kind of develop that point for a second, listening to the president's speech last night really underscores what I'm talking about, though, in terms of the challenge that this situation puts certain types of politicians into. The, The decision the policy changes that the U.S. government is now instituting as of last night are not the actual policy changes that public health officials have recommended that should be implemented, right? What they've done instead is tried to find a way of making the coronavirus and their response to it compatible with the kinds of things that as an administration they want to do and are already politically motivated to do. So effectively doubling down on a travel ban, on travel restrictions, which this administration has already done for other reasons, now extending that to a 30-day ban on travel between the United States and Europe, but in a way that is completely incoherent from a public uh, health response perspective, right? Having an exemption for the United Kingdom and Ireland where people can catch connecting flights from the European mainland to the United States through the UK. I mean, you're not effectively going to be addressing the transmission of the virus by instituting this travel ban. And even if that was effective, which it simply won't be, it doesn't address, and the president's speech last night pretty much failed to address categorically the fact of transmissions now happening within the United States, because of course the virus is already there. It's not a question of building a wall and keeping it out of the USA. That was never an option, and even if it had been, it's much, much too late. So the president and his administration are working very hard not to engage with the reality 
realities of what public health officials are telling them is necessary to address the spread of the of coronavirus in the United States itself. And so they're doing that you know, in defiance of scientific expertise. And they're, they're doing that in a way that tries to maintain the integrity of their political project, um, but which is a political project, which is completely, you know, inappropriate for these current circumstances. Yeah. And, and with that all being said, you know, the, the U.S., I feel like has to be the biggest threat to uh, what could potentially happen here in Canada. I mean, we're lucky enough. We don't have uh, too many cases. Only 101 was the last number I've heard. It might have gone up uh, since the last time I read a number because that number seems to just tick up slowly uh, every single day and every single hour. But, you know, uh, pretty minimal in Canada at this point in time. But, you know, that, that's got to be the biggest concern is uh, people traveling across the border and, and people living near border cities. I mean, the, these are the places that I would think would pose the biggest risk to us here in Canada. And, um, you know, with the U.S. not really taking those steps to address the problem within its own borders, um, you know, that, that's got to be the biggest worry for us here in, in you know, as, as a country that's just north of the United States. You know, certainly uh, an increase in infections in the U.S. almost certainly foretells a growth in, in infections in Canada as well, right? We're too closely integrated. People travel across the border. Uh, economic health on both sides of the Canada-U.S. border requires, you know, people to go back and forth. Um, so, you know, I think we're in a similar position to the United States in the sense of uh, being fairly early on in our own respective, you know, epidemics, and we're going to see uh, infection rates increase as we see the number of tests being administered increasing as well. So, uh, you know, the number of confirmed cases, the hundred and some in Canada, is is frankly, you know, the tip of the iceberg. There are almost certainly far, far more as yet undiagnosed cases in Canada. Um, and that, of course, is the problem, right? People who don't realize that they're infected and are, are perhaps not exhibiting major physical symptoms, are feeling well themselves. People who are going to be fine, you know, their own health is going to be fine, but they're transmitting the virus and they're mm -hmm. spreading it through their communities and they don't realize that they're doing it. And that's, you know, that's the kind of exact point where the WHO's advice and you know the government of Canada's advice to just wash your hands frequently comes right in because if everybody is doing that regardless of whether or not they feel like they might be sick you're going to help stop the transmission um, but there's or I should say probably you're going to help slow the rate of transmission since uh, it seems pretty clear at this point um, that it can't be stopped right and we're going to see um, this rolling wave of infections across the population, uh, and that that's, the question is how quickly is that rate of infection going to increase, uh, because how quickly it increases is really what's going to determine how well the public health system is able to keep up with it. And so slowing the rate of transmission, these measures around washing hands, social distancing, etc., that we've been hearing about are, are not intended to stop the epidemic. They're, they're intended to slow its spread in a way that will allow public health authorities and medical authorities to cope. Yeah, and we heard uh, health, Federal Health Minister Patty Heider yesterday saying this could affect between 30 and 70 percent of the Canadian population by the time it's all said and done. So, uh, you, uh, yeah, we're just at the, the, the beginning here, I think. Uh, just want to ask you, too, will they have you here, Will? I mean, you're, you're obviously with the University of Victoria. Um, you know, you being a professor, how, how has this uh, in, impacted you so far? I mean, has it had a significant impact yet? Or, or uh, you know, just what, what, what has COVID-19 done to your, your job so far at this point? 
far, the uh, effects have been relatively minor, but just since yesterday, we've we've kind of seen a significant uh, increase. So, obviously, until yesterday, there were no confirmed cases uh, of, of COVID-19 on Vancouver Island. Uh, there's now been confirmation that we have at least one case on the island, which means uh, it seems likely that it's going to spread through the broader, you know, the broader community now. Um, but up until now, you know, our classes haven't been affected. The University of Victoria, where I work, is still open. Uh, there have been some very, you know, modest uh, uh, changes on campus around, as I said, hand washing, but things like um, reusable mugs in the cafeteria are no longer allowed and so forth. You know, very modest attempts to try to, to limit the spread of the virus uh, within the university community. I think, uh, you know, speaking for myself, but I imagine for many of my colleagues as well, we've been hopeful that if the rate of uh, transmission was low enough or, or was slow enough to get to the island, that we might be able to get uh, close to the end of this current semester, which has around three weeks remaining, uh, without significant disruption. We'll see whether or not that happens. We'll see whether or not we have uh, cases that are directly related to the student body or otherwise related to the, the campus community, in which case we would probably see campus being closed and having to, to shift the remainder of our teaching online um, just to round out the last couple of weeks of the semester. In addition to that, though, um, you know, within my, my job, in a broader sense, as a, as a professor and as a researcher, we are seeing some pretty significant consequences. Uh, springtime is a major season for academic conferences and academic events where people gather to share their research and to connect with their colleagues. Uh, and we've seen just a, a cascade, a wave of those events being cancelled in the last several days. So. Um, those are responsible choices to make. You know, I think it's a good thing, ultimately, that these large gatherings of uh, hundreds or thousands of, of academics are not are not gathering under these circumstances. But uh, there's a very real effect that that will have on many people's work and on our professional activities uh, and a really uh, significant financial hardship that those cancellations are going to impose on many organizations and professional, you know, academic and, uh, associations and so forth as well. So uh, we are still early days on this, but we're already going to see uh, some significant effects. And if we see any um, outbreak or any uh, you know, positive diagnoses uh, within the university community itself, I think we would see uh, probably quite a, a rapid uh, transition away from on-campus-based activities towards uh, off, you know, offline, I should say online, in-person, uh, not in-person mm -hmm. uh, types of, of teaching and learning. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, well, well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and, and speak to me today. I really appreciate it. I think you got some great insight here. And um, yeah, I've just uh, enjoyed our chat. So thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Awesome. That was Will Greaves, Assistant Professor of International Relations at the University of Victoria, talking about the uh, just the political and institutional responses here to the coronavirus and COVID-19 and just what has gone on globally here over the last little while. And, and of course, you know, we're just kind of watching and waiting and learning as things go and things progress here. Um, you know, people are making decisions uh, you know, basically at the seat of their pants uh, on a lot of these cases, you know, you're just kind of reacting to the, the news as it comes down.